1: Welcome back, dear listener. This is episode 134 of the Iron Fist Velvet Glove podcast. With me, as usual, the Velvet Glove and the 12th Man. Gentlemen, to you both, welcome aboard.
2: Thank you very much.
1: So, we've got a full house of of our normal panel here, dear listener. And it's a bit of a different episode, this one. Uh, Jam packed with stuff and a few pre recorded interviews. So,. I had contact from a lady called Caitlin who is involved with a group um, down in um, Albury-Wodonga. There is a fertility clinic which is offering abortion services as well as other things, and they're currently being picketed by a religious group who hang around on the footpaths and accost anybody who might think of going in and hand them pamphlets and things like that. So... um, Her group is sort of doing a counter-protest against the protesters and I had a chat to her and I recorded the interview, so I'll play that now. Dear listener, I have a special guest with me, Caitlin from Wagga Wagga, who made contact through... Oh, was it the Facebook page or was that how you contacted me, Caitlin?
3: Yes, yes, that's right. I um, sent you a message and I spammed you with my uh, interest in the... uh in the topic that I've come to speak to you about.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So, dear listener, apparently there is an abortion clinic in Albury which is being picketed by anti-abortion protesters. And Caitlin alerted me to a rally that's going to take place on the 24th of March at 1pm in Albury. So there'll be links on the show notes as to that. But if you're anywhere in the Albury region on the 24th of March, Make your way down there to the rally, but meanwhile, Caitlin, tell me what is going on down there and what your involvement is, and and what what we need to know.
3: So, as you as you explain, there is a uh, well. I, I say it's a fertility clinic because obviously um, the the clinic there it services a lot of different things, not just uh, abortion for for women and for uh, people seeking. Uh, family planning advice Mm -hmm. and there is a group there they're sort of a bit of a breakaway from uh, they're sort of a catholic affiliated group um that have been very vocal and very aggressive in their um i'm not even sure if you could say it's protesting because they're (laughs) they've become very um animated and quite aggressive in the way that they've approached people that have been trying to access this clinic Mm -hmm. they've been uh you know intimidating people and handing out fetus dolls and just generally doing things to these people. I mean, not everyone there is going there for an abortion. Some Sometimes people have wanted pregnancies. Um, sometimes people miscarry. Some people have, you know, medical reasons that they can't carry through a trial to term. And it's, it's really awful. I mean, I've, I've heard stories of women who have gone to access that clinic and the harassment and the intimidation that they suffer is just it 's really awful, you know it 's a, a highly personal thing to go through and to have a bunch of strangers accosting you and sort of jumping on you when you 're trying to access a, a you know medical advice to my mind it's a private private thing between you and your doctor, and nobody needs to know about the reason why you're there. I mean you could go so far as to say well you know it's a, it's a woman 's choice, and that's something I believe, but fundamentally um, people should have the right to go and access the um, the advice of a doctor without having someone assume what they're there for and place their judgment and their beliefs on that person so that's why we believe that there should be an exclusion zone outside of this clinic basically what we're hoping to do is to get 150-metre uh, exclusion zone outside of the clinic so that uh, these people that are, you know, standing right out, out the front of this clinic, you know, with, with signs and with their, with their kids in some instances, mm. you know, it can be a really confrontational environment. Definitely not one that you would think would be suitable for these, um, these people to be bringing their, their kids
1: well, well, the beauty about this is I, um, when you sent me the sort of link and I looked at the Facebook page for the group called We Need Exclusion Zones Right Here, Right Now, that group, which I guess you're a part of, Caitlin, is... Yes, that's correct. The interesting thing that they're doing, dear listener, is they are taking photographs and videos of the protesters. So it's a public space and you can go onto the Facebook page and see the actual clinic and street that we're talking about. And and one of the sort of activists from We Need Exclusion Zones right here right now uh, goes up to these different groups of Christians and and really knows a lot of them on a first name basis and says, Oh, hello Peter, I see you're here again. And oh, who are you? You're a new one, haven't seen you here before. And some of them are quite creepy. And initially their response would be, if they don't know that the interviewer is, is um, sort of a, protesting a their protest. protest, they might be quite friendly and want to hand them the pamphlet and then other people say to them, no, 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 don't talk to that person. You know, they're, they're actually protesting our protest. And then they sort of either turn their backs and, and become silent or... They start just launching into a group prayer of Our Fathers and Hail Marys. And
3: it's, it sounds, very,
1: it's creepy, isn't yeah. it, Caitlin?
3: It's, and, and, you know, these people are, um, they're, unfortunately, they've sort of infiltrated a lot of the community there. And I think a problem for a lot of the people, especially local to Albury, they're intimidated by these people because it's a very small, uh, you know, I mean, it's a, Technically, it's a city, but it's still very small and you've got less than six degrees of separation. And these people are very, um, some of them are very influential in the community. Mm-hmm. And so um, one of the problems that we're seeing is that people um, people are afraid to actually go and access uh, you know, medical advice here because they've got family that knows these people and there's been people say that they've been taking photos of them and then posting it on a website, you know, or, or telling their family members that they're at the clinic, which is completely unethical. You know, people should be entitled to their privacy and they've been, uh, I mean, I've heard stories of them, you know, they park their car strategically, you know, right outside the clinic so that people then have to walk, right. you know, and they have to actually go past these people and um so they're they're very and they have the support of the catholic church behind them you know they um they've been threatening people with legal action whenever they uh when when they post things online uh so you know we're, we really do feel as though we're facing uh you know a very organized group of people um there's a few people in the albury city council that also support this group and are very outspoken and you know have made it very difficult to um sort of have a diplomatic and you know sort of uh a discussion that does not involve, you know, sneering and leering and mm. just, just being smug and objective about, you know, the reasons why, um, you know, it just kind of reverts to a conversation about killing babies. And
1: has, has Albury got a history of really conservative Christian sort of influence, a bit like Toowoomba, say in Queensland? Has it always been like that or is this just a recent phenomenon? Yeah,
3: I, I think so. Um, I believe that I mean, being that it's a rural city, I think that it, it probably, you know, it's more conservative than what you would find in, you know, in a in a bigger city, and and definitely there is uh, people say that it's difficult to get birth control, even even to go into a chemist, you know, there's there's places in Albury where um, you can be refused contraception or oh, condoms, oh, oh, you know, so really? that's kind of what I deal with, and, and and you know, I heard people telling me these stories, and I was like. That is outrageous. You know, it's almost unbelievable to think that we live in a time when people can still face that kind of, like, as a, as a medical profession, my feeling is that if you're not able to, to give someone medical advice and give them what they need to make their own decisions, then well, maybe you need to choose a different profession. If your personal beliefs are stopping you from being able to give your patients what they need to decide their own, you know, have their own autonomy over their life, then Mm. that's a problem. When you say, I
1: I can't believe we still live in a time where you can't get, you know, buy condoms, for example, in the pharmacy, I sort of wonder whether we've actually regressed, whether 25 years ago those pharmacies would have had shelves full of condoms and, and that we've in recent yeah. times become more conservative and they've taken them off the shelf. I, d- I don't know, but that's just my sense of the way some Australian communities are importing this sort of US-style conservative Christian view. And and maybe we're more conservative in some of these places than, than we were 25, 30 years ago. I'm not sure. I don't know. But it's a suspicion I have.
3: Well, it's interesting that you say that because uh, I, I would—I don't know—I I couldn't say whether or not Albury's gotten better or worse, uh, but I do know that the leader of this particular sort of cult that is that that is doing these protest, you know, these um, offensive sort of uh, picketing outside of this clinic—he's um, actually American, right? And right. Uh, so that might explain the sort of aggressive style of accosting people that you see that you know it's similar to what you see in the american sort of thing you might have i know you've mentioned the the satanic temple and you know some of the aggressive sort of activism that they've had to do to counter mm. you know the the sort of street protests that are happening outside of the planned parenthood clinics there it's it's a similar sort of thing
1: yep yeah, doesn't surprise me in the least that you would say that some an American evangelical has found his way into leading that group. It does not surprise me in the least. But hey, what? So your group presumably is um, sort of making contact with politicians and trying to get you know an exclusion zone as part of the law in New South Wales. What do you think your chances are?
3: Well, we tried to. I, I was um, I was actually attending the council meeting where we tried to get it through the Albury City Council, and um, that was voted down, mm-hmm. um, which was very unfortunate. Um, the mayor voted against the exclusion zone, and the justification was that it really needed federal enforcement, um, and that was mainly because there, the basically you need you need police to be able to enforce an exclusion zone, and that, that can't be done if it's on that council basis, then you only have the power of rangers, whereas... Uh, this is my understanding of it i 'm not really up to scratch on the legal mm-hmm. you know, the, the legal details, but my understanding was that in order to be able to enforce an exclusion zone, you basically need federal legislation Or, so, or
1: state uh, legislation i think because, uh, because for example, Victoria has it i think it 's a state um, yes. legislation yep.
3: so we have been trying to get the support of politicians to come behind this um, exclusion zone, Mm -hmm. because we, um, even though, uh, you know, a lot, I guess the argument is that it's an infringement of freedom of speech and freedom to protest, but the concern that we have is that it's really, uh, it's a private matter what people are entering the clinic to do, and it's a very intimidating environment. Oftentimes, these people are not given a lot of space, and they're, they're being accosted in a time when they're very vulnerable and there, there has been violence and, you know, obviously, you know, people, people don't like their space being invaded when they're on, on either side. You know, there's these people that ardently believe that they ha- they're saving lives. And for the record, I, I don't think there's been one woman that they've been able to turn away. I mean, obviously, there's been a few people that I know have been uh, made quite upset and have walked away but have come back to the clinic but you know their their feeling is that if they can stop women from killing babies then well they've done their job but hmm. so I guess we're at the moment we're trying to get support of politicians to to vote for the exclusion zone yep. have, you, um, have you spoken yeah. to
1: the actual clinic themselves what what's their feeling on the whole do, do they are they involved in this at all or you can't say or
3: well I um, I know that one of the other organizers of this uh, protest has been in touch with the clinic but i think it's it's you know they i think they're trying to trying to not get involved with it as much as possible but obviously they've they've had to hire security to um to sort of keep people for these protesters from
1: yeah. creating
3: too much disturbance for the patients
1: i suppose uh, there's one unique solution available down there because albury is right on the border of New South Wales, Victoria, isn't it? So that so Wodonga is the sort of just side by side, is that right? And it's in Victoria. And one solution would be just to move the clinic a, a kilometre down the road, and you'd be okay. Is that right?
3: Yeah. Well, the only problem with that idea, and yeah, that I mean, that's in theory, that's a great idea, but I don't believe that there is a a clinic in all in Wodonga. And I guess the only problem, to, to my knowledge. This is the only clinic outside of a metropolitan area. Right. So it's not only servicing Albury, it's also servicing Wagga, it's servicing, you know, um, you know everywhere in New South Wales that's sort of on this, you know, on the southern end of New yep. South Wales. But
1: I've never been there, but I'm just thinking if you're in Albury... And Wodonga is, is right beside it. Is that correct? Like they're just sort of joined? You, you cross a yeah. river or something, do you? So
3: could We're the clinic
1: possibly. just literally move a kilometre down the road into Wodonga and then it would have the benefit of the Victorian no-go zones?
3: That, um, I, that I guess would be a, a great solution, although I don't know what the uh, – I'm, I'm not sure what the – circumstances are surrounding that particular clinic and, mm. um, you there, know, whether or not that's feasible. There
1: registration issues in terms of doctors being registered in different states and whatever. I, you know, obviously nobody wants to uproot a business and shift it down the road if they can avoid it. But, yeah, the strange thing is if this clinic was literally across... Is it a river between the separates, Albury and... Yeah, the, it's right. the
3: Murray... Okay,
1: rainforest. so literally if they were across the river, these people could not do it, so... Just ironic, really.
3: Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's actually a really good point. One one of the things that they uh, discussed in the in the council meeting was that people can drive their cars to the back of the clinic, but I I think that there was some problem with that. And I think that you know the principle is the principle of it is that you know people people shouldn't have to be harassed when they're you know getting medical Mm. treatments done. Mm. You, uh, my feeling is that you can't really assume that anyone going in there is going to terminate an unwanted pregnancy. There's a lot of people that go in there for other reasons and...
1: I mean, I've got some close friends myself where unfortunately um, the pregnant mother, you know, the the child, the heartbeat stopped, so she needed to go and have an operation done um, to remove an unborn fetus and it was a very traumatic event for her. It was, you know, heartbreaking. It was a baby she wanted and the thought that she would have to dodge people like this on the way in would just be horrendous. So... Mm -hmm. You're right. People go in for all sorts of, of reasons. But the other thing I was going to say to you is uh, you've got to make approaches now that with the council, I understand that's not going to work because they say it has to be a state. And I'm obviously based in Queensland. I don't know a lot about New South Wales um, politics, but it seems to me that, that you've got your fair share of uh, religious conservatives in government there in New South Wales. And so I, don't do? like, I don't like your chances. Of getting this sort of thing through. I mean, I was for just for some research for the podcast for the next episode. Um, I was looking at some comments by your New South Wales Finance Minister Dominic Perrottet. I'm not sure how you pronounce it. Um, and you know, he was again saying, "Oh, these tax cuts by Donald Trump—they're fantastic, and that's what Turnbull needs to do." And rah rah rah. And I thought. That's just a really weird thing to say, and my, my, um, you know, if people have a gaydar where they can pick out, you know, whether people, somebody, yeah. whether there's a gay person or not, well, yeah. I've, I've got one that works out whether people are religious or not, and, and my religious radar was just beeping, beeping, you know,
3: off the, th- charts.
1: Off the charts, so a quick Google search, <laughs> and your finance minister down there, he's a staunch Catholic of the oh. Opus Dei sect, and... And, you know, just digressing for a moment, but um, these these extreme religious conservatives who often have this sort of low-tax, um, pro-big business, pro-small business, no-welfare sort of thing, it, it all stems from this sort of prosperity gospel where if you're poor, it's because you're sinful. And that gives them the sort of moral... uh, High ground to do whatever they... Yeah, or reasoning to be able to say, oh, well, you know, cut welfare and cut taxes and everybody for themselves. But they're so-called Christians. It just... It is so opposite to what you would think a Christian should actually say, but that's their... Their mentality, and, and your finance minister, Dominic, um, what's his name, is, is in that category. And I don't know about the Premier, Gladys Berejiklian, but um, uh, how do you say it?
3: Berejiklian.
1: Berejiklian, right. She's some sort of Armenian um, apostolic church. So I don't know what, you know, there's a suspicion there that she's quite conservative. Do you Do you know?
3: Uh, you know, I'm not actually sure about yeah. Gladys, um, but you're not wrong. There is a lot of uh, there there is a lot of religious conservatives in New South Wales, and I, I, I do feel as though we might have a bit of an uphill uh, battle in getting through this mm. uh, motion, which is why why we're hoping to get as much support as we can and as many people to come and attend this rally. We've got uh, we've actually got Penny Sharp who is going to be speaking at this protest. And um, unfortunately, we, we have had Maureen Verrugge, who uh, has been quite vocal in, uh, you know, women's rights and reproductive autonomy, um, but she, she wasn't able to make it, sadly. But, um, you know, we're, we're kind of hoping that if we get enough people to come and show their support for this, then perhaps it will demonstrate to our politicians that, you know this is this is something that um, is important, and it's something that they should listen to, and um, you know it requires their consideration.
1: Mm-hmm. So, so the group is called "We Need Exclusion Zones Right Here, Right Now." And how how did the group come about? Like, how does an activist group like that just sort of spring up out of the ground? Was it one person who said, oh, "I've had enough," and just put an ad in the paper? How did how did it happen, <laughs> and how did you get into it?
3: Well, I'm actually a reasonably uh, new. Addition to the uh, to the group, uh, this is this has been an issue that I that that's I'm quite passionate about repro- uh, women's reproductive rights, and I uh, I got involved with the group after uh, having heard about this this group. They're called the Protectors of God's Precious Infants, right. I believe. Yep, um, that's yep. what they call themselves. So the women who are working on this. That have been doing this for some time now for some years they 've been basically just trying to I, I believe that they 've been personally affected by they 've known people that have right. had tremendously awful experiences with these people being quite aggressive when they 've tried to access the clinic for you know i, I wouldn 't even be able to tell you what, you know what the purpose of the, the visit was obviously, but you know going through a horrible amount of intimidation and unnecessary confrontation. Yeah,
1: and, and so they started a group, and how did you find them then?
3: Uh, well, there was uh, – I, I have friends that are based in Albury, um, so right. I'd, I'd actually heard a little bit about, you know.
1: that. So sort of word, uh, of word of mouth from some friends.
3: I, I've heard it through word of mouth, and actually ABC, uh, Triple J did a, a special on this, on this group. Right. And yeah. I'm not sure if you've uh, – th- there was a hack special on it.
1: I'm not familiar with it, no.
3: So Sarah McVeigh did a, a special on the protectors of God's precious infants and their, um, you know, their picketing outside of this clinic. And, and I mean, I, I was aware of the fact that this was, this was something that was happening, but I didn't actually realise that we had something that bad here in Australia, you know, with people so aggressively picketing women trying to access... Clinics and medical uh, support. I know that from my own experience, even here in Wagga, that I've I've gone to access uh, help and for, for contraception, and I've mm-hmm. had uh, religious doctors intimidate me and basically berate me for uh, choosing to use contraception.
1: Really? And yeah.
3: Yeah. Um, wow. And and you know, my feeling was from that experience, you know. I went through a tremendous amount of anxiety and unnecessary uh, worry um, because I was told that, you know, if I use this contraception, then I was going to have cysts on my ovaries and it was going to do all of these things. And even though I had, um, you know, I'd been to a specialist and I'd had I, – I, I was using it as a – it wasn't, you know, specifically for contraception. It was because I had another existing medical condition and right. um, yep. I, I didn't feel like I needed to go in to see a doctor about it and ha- have them – reprimand me for having it uh, under the assumption that it was a contraceptive thing and you know I just thought how presumptuous that a doctor first of all reprimands you and then puts their personal beliefs and that's kind of where it started for me that was probably yeah, six right. years ago
1: so you felt it wasn't objective medical advice but it was tainted by his religious beliefs to push you it in was a actually way. what was that
3: yeah it was actually a female doctor, if you can oh, even believe. Right. right. It, it was quite upsetting for me because, you know, you go to a doctor and you expect that they're going to give you objective uh, advice based upon, you know, what what's going to be best for you. And at the time, I was uh, studying at university and I'd had this, uh, it was a, an IUD implant. Mm. You know, I, I went there to get a, a checkup and, you know, I was interrogated by two nurses well, oh, why do you have this and you know and then I had the doctor come in and then give me a serve about it and say oh you can have oh. cysts on your ovaries and all this stuff and I went to see the radiographer after that because she said oh you're gonna have terrible problems the radiographer kind of looked at me and he said that's a load of rubbish <laughs> there's nothing wrong with you at all
1: so did you have the choice then of going to a different doctor in Wagga Wagga then
3: well, the trouble is, and I think you'd find the same in Albury. Uh, I, I, I can't speak, you know, I'm, I, I don't know if this is the case, but the trouble is that there is a lot of conservative doctors. Mm. I believe a lot of them are Coptic Christian and the, the clinics are actually owned by Coptic Christians. And the, the, the problem is, to my mind, that if you're, if you're pushing your religious agenda on people, there is a conflict of interest.
1: hmm this this is, this leads to one of my arguments with the twelfth man, where he often says, "Well, you know, he doesn't want to interfere with personal freedoms of of the providers." So he's a real sort of libertarian, even though he won't like me using that term, as you know. I listening
3: but listening to a but, debate, so but, it's very good.
1: But his his view would be, "Oh well, you know, as a consumer, you can just exercise your right and go somewhere else." And the point I try to make to him is in rural and regional Australia, that's not necessarily possible. And mm. as you're saying, you can have groups of like-minded providers, which, you know, on the face of it, you might say, oh, there's, you know, half a dozen doctors in Wagga Wagga or whatever. But if if they're all part of the same clinic and they're all working together, it's potentially they, they share a lot of the same values and you may be completely outside of what of what they're wanting to provide. So... It's not that easy, 12th man, to just say, oh, exercise your rights to go to a different shop or a different provider, because the choice may not be there.
3: Yeah, uh, I think, well, I mean, I've had it, I've heard someone say before, and I don't know if this is any more the case, but I have, Walker had the highest teenage pregnancy rate. And I often sort of... I wonder if that's because the doctors won't provide contraception or won't provide any fertility advice. Yeah. If they have their, these beliefs that they're sort of inflicting on each and every teenager that comes in with a, uh, you know, unwanted pregnancy, then that could possibly account for it. But, I mean, quite apart from anything else, I'd been to uh, several specialists and I did actually manage to find another doctor after that and the the advice that I was given was many many people rolling their eyes and saying that is that is just so wrong that's a load of uh, that's a load of nonsense that they would tell you that that was going to happen to you I mean I suppose you can make the assumption that maybe they didn't know any better but I mean it, it seemed to me that it was very very much scornful of the the decision that I that I'd made to have the the contraception in the first place, yeah. um, and you know, I'm, I'm part of a group of people that uh, of women that it's it's not it, it's actually for a, for medical reasons. So you know people don't just use contraception, you know the pill or mm. I- intrauterine implants as a form of contraception. Or oftentimes they might have polycystic ovaries, or they might have there might be other existing reasons why they would need that to control other conditions that they might have, um, as was the case with me. Mm. So to to come into a medical practice and then to have someone berate you for a few is kind of, to my mind, a little bit unethical.
1: Yeah. Well, I wish you luck, but I... Yeah, I <laughs> I have a terrible feeling that you're not going to get a satisfactory result down there for a long time because I just had the feeling your yeah. New South Wales parliament is not going to come to the party and unfortunately anyone wanting to use the services there are going to be dodging the bible bashes on the street but dear listener there will be links on the on the on the website and it is worthwhile having a look at the videos as as these um, religious groups are approached and they're quite creepy and the way they launch into prayers and turn their backs and go silent and and one of them has their little daughter there as well as a sort of as a mechanism to try and stop the filming and it's quite instructive just to look at the video and you get a good feel for what's going on so yeah all right, yeah. Caitlin, well, I reckon that's sort of wrapped up what, what we needed to say. What do you did, Was there anything else you wanted to add beyond that?
3: Oh, no. Well, I guess just uh, I just thank you very much for uh, helping me get, get this out there and um, we hope that if there's anyone that, you know, wants to attend the rally uh, to look at the Facebook page and look at, uh, you know, join the event. It's 1 p.m. on Saturday, 24th of March at the QE2 Square in Albury. Mm-hmm. Um, we're going to have the... New South Wales MP Penny Sharp speaking, and we have a few other guest speakers that are yet to be confirmed. So um, we'd love to have the support of, you know, whoever would like to come and lend their uh, support to us. We'd really appreciate that.
1: Yep, and no doubt a few faces from the religious groups will be there with their Bibles, perhaps praying on the sidelines and watching.
3: Oh, I dare say. Mm, mm. I dare say they'll probably be there. Mm.
1: (laughs) All right, well, good luck with that, Caitlin. hope it all goes well. Thanks for, thanks for coming on the podcast.
3: Thank you very much for having me, Trevor.
1: Scott, you're a good boy. You, listened, you did your homework and actually listened to it, <laughs> whereas
4: the tough man, he's going to fly blind on this one. <laughs> your thoughts, Scott? Um, I had to say I was revolted by the tactics that were being employed by the presumably Christian protesters. Mm. Um. It shouldn't surprise me because, you know, we've heard about this in the United States and it appears that we have imported a Yank to come in here and fight this battle. Is that right? There was, I think she said that there was an American who was in charge of the anti abortionists. Yes. Yep. Yeah. And it, it shouldn't surprise me that we've imported a Yank and we've also then imported their methods. But it really did shock me. The, uh, Abuse that people were copying, I suppose, is, is probably, that's probably the right word. They were copying abuse on the way in. And the thing that really sickened me was that you don't just go in there for an abortion. You go in there for family planning as well. Mm. And the assumption was that you're going in there for an abortion, therefore you must be stopped. That, I think, is a, uh, it's a really disgusting thing to your mind to jump to immediately to say, oh, it's got to be, they must be here for an abortion, you know?
5: Mm.
4: That was really quite offensive, and, and I people think. people
1: sometimes have to go for an abortion of of a of a, of a fetus that has unfortunately died, so... Exactly. There's all yeah, sorts y- of y-
4: you, you made that point. You said that mm. you had a friend that had to go through that sort of procedure because mm. she had um, she had lost the baby in utero, mm. and... You know, and then she had to go in and have it removed, and that sort of thing. So, and that's that's where you go and you go into a clinic like that to have that sort of work done. Mm. You know. So anyway, it's... full
1: marks to that group who are fighting back and are doing their little counter protest. And there'll be links to it on the website. And if you're in the Albury-Wodonga area uh, on that date in March, by all means head over there and give them a hand and and help uh, add up the numbers. So. um Good on you. Um, uh, the other thing I wanted to mention was um, we, got a, uh, we got a message from one of our listeners, 12th man, and uh, here's the message. It says, high fist, glove, and 12th. I'm currently lis- listening to episode 132, and after listening to the 12th man's opinion on vaccinations, I'm wondering what his opinion is on seatbelt and helmet laws. I see them as being almost perfect parallels. Helmet and seatbelt laws are the government interfering in people's lives to protect them from themselves. Helmets and seatbelts even hurt and kill people from time to time, but we accept the negatives because they are vastly outweighed by the positives. So, first of all, 12th man, you were um, unwilling to have mandatory vaccinations mm-hmm. from memory. Yep because that was an imposition on
2: civil liberties or freedoms or individual freedoms? What I see as as a dangerous incursion by the state into our physical integrity, whereas... I'm sorry, uh, Greg, but I don't see them as as very similar to being forced to wear a helmet on a bicycle or a seatbelt in a car, because you can always take the helmet off and you can take the seatbelt off, but you can't take the vaccination out. Once it's performed, right? It's a, if, it's an invasion of our you know physical integrity, and I'm, I'm not saying they're harmful by by any means. I'm not a, I'm not one of those. Yes, anti-va- you you anti-va- would have a
1: vaccination, and I've, you would have, I've had many
2: vaccinations yeah. in my life, and I'll probably have more in the future. But what I'm saying is, I think it's just a a slippery slope when you let the state start taking control of every single. Um, thing that we might think is advisable or even necessary in our lives. Now the, the thing about seatbelts in cars, obviously that's something you know, cars travel at high speed, they inflict incredible damage on property and other living things that they might collide with. And um,
1: look, So So you're happy to have a mandatory seat belt and, and, uh, and, uh, and I'm a, quite and happy
2: a, with it and I've always and complied with helmet. it. Right. Bicycle helmets, I comply in Australia simply because I don't want to wear the fine. Yes. Uh, I have travelled by bicycle in several foreign countries and most of the time I'm happy to admit I did not wear a bicycle helmet. I wore a cap. That kept the sun off my face and my, my neck and my ears to protect if, me. If you were suddenly appointed an all-powerful president
1: of Australia, mm. would you change the laws to make it well, optional? Cycling helmets? I probably would, to
2: be honest. Mm-hmm. I,
1: but not seatbelts?
2: No, not car seatbelts. No, cars are an altogether different uh, animal. You know, if you hit someone on a bicycle mm. or if you fall off a bicycle, even if you hit someone with a bicycle, you're unlikely to inflict the same sort of carnage on them as you would if you hit them with a car. Um, I I see a difference between the examples of the seatbelt and the helmet laws. The the
1: difference between those and the vaccinations are that if you don't want to wear a seatbelt or wear a helmet, you just choose not to drive a car or ride a bike and you won't have to. But with the vaccinations, it's saying... You just have to you if you 're just going to yeah
2: well and, and it's if you,
1: actually it 's still the same, maybe if you're if you 're going to attend a school or a public
2: you already know my position, fist, mm. and that is that we should be educating people, yes, we should be te- giving people sufficient <laughs> good education about science and nature and medical science and the progress we 've made with with mass vaccinations, persuade them that it's in their interest and persuade them that the vaccination they're getting or their children are getting is safe and and beneficial for them and other people around them. Mm, I just don't like the idea of the government mandating it. You've riled a few people with that one. But um,
1: uh, next part B of of what Greg had to say is, how would you feel about a law that says parents don't have to vaccinate, but if their child is hurt or killed by a vaccine-preventable illness or their child infects another person who is hurt or injured, they will be liable for charges of child endangerment, negligence, manslaughter, etc. What do you think of that?
2: Oh, I think it's a bit silly, to be honest, because, I mean, if you do cause harm to somebody else, they can take you to court, can't they, already? Well, well but he's giving to... this example. Would you?
1: Would you say, for example, you... if a child ended up with... Uh, some debilitative condition as a result of an illness that would have been Look, stopped by a vaccine should the should the child be able to sue
2: the parents i I work in edu- in the education industry as you know as mm. as a um, as a teacher now should i should I take my students to court every time I come down with a cold because it 's could be them that I've caught it from because I know from experience a lot of people st- don't cover their sneezes. And we all know that we pick up these things from the, from the air, from, you know, particles floating around the air, from well, touching doorknobs that's, that's and handnails. Not a, let,
1: let me give a closer analogy. Let's say, for example, a child is a passenger while their parent is driving and the parent is negligent in some way in driving, then the child is injured... Mm that child has the ability to sue their parent.
2: They do now, don't they? And they they? do. Yeah.
1: Yep. So how would that be different to a child who um, suffered, uh, you know, uh, some sort of paraplegia or something quite significant? We're not talking just about a cold, but a a severe lifelong sort of disability as a result of not being vaccinated wouldn't... I don't know. I would think think it's the same thing. They can sue their parents now, can't they? well, I don't know if they can or can't, but what's your opinion?
2: Should they be able to? I don't really have an opinion on it. I mean, no. people litigate for all kinds of reasons. Uh, no. I probably wouldn't sue my parents. Um, but you would
1: if you were, you would if you were um, uh, a, a passenger in a car accident
2: or a, or a, or a negligence sort of situation? Possibly. I mm. don't know. I really don't know, but i mean i I think we can i think we have to be because a little bit careful about where where we draw the boundaries of responsibility in a complex society where all of us are exposed to all kinds of risks in our daily lives. We can't just always look for somebody to blame for everything that happens in life you know and um i Vaccinations are a terrific thing, but uh, as for suing people because you allege their child infected your child, I I don't know. I think that's.
1: What, what about you? Um, getting a bit Scott, litigation crazy, Scott? Do you reckon that a uh, a child who suffers a major you know disability as a result of not being vaccinated should have the ability to sue their parent?
4: Absolutely, I do. Mm-hmm. Um, because I honestly think you should, because you know. You hear it, you know, uh, watching television and that sort of stuff, which is just fictional, I know that, but I've seen there's been a few of the anti-vaxxers have been depicted on TV series, and they carry on about, you know, the, the risks and that sort of stuff. I think if these parents were held accountable for their decisions, then you would see a much more intelligent discussion about the risks of vaccines, you know? I think that if parents were held accountable for their actions, then you would end up seeing a dramatic drop in the number of people that are conscientious objectors to vaccination. Mm. Now, I also think that we should look at the question, my next question is for the whole team, blah 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 blah, Uh, would be liable for charges of child endangerment, negligence, manslaughter, etc. So they're talking about a criminal sanction against the parents that that refuse to vaccinate their children. I think that We should actually proceed down that road so that we could have some sort of criminal sanction against parents who choose not to vaccinate their kids.
2: Gee. That will really (laughs) open up the litigation (laughs) floodgates, let me tell you. And and I called you the velvet glove and
4: and myself the iron fist. (laughs) No, when it comes to this sort of thing, I am quite hard line on it because it is absolutely. If you (laughs) recklessly
1: endanger somebody's life, that is a criminal (laughs) offence. Deliberately, or well, just, if you could,
4: by the if way. You, uh, reckless. Yeah, just be a kid that's got whooping cough, for God's sake. Mm. You know, that is absolutely bloody criminal that people are still getting whooping cough because you can get uh, vaccinated, and you can get vaccinated for that for 30 years or something like that. You know, that's how long we've had the vaccine for, and yet people are still getting whooping cough now. I, I find that absolutely bloody deplorable that anyone could conduct themselves in a way and actually think that they're doing the right thing by their kids
2: well they're ignorant you know, you know i mean ignorance is a terrible thing but do you yeah. throw well, everyone that's... in jail who's ignorant
4: oh you're not everyone you don't you'd have only a very small number of people that would still cling to that yeah. outdated outmoded idea and then they would end up Serving time, even if it's only six months or something like that, oh, it would Jesus. just be a. It would only be a very small number of people that would go that far.
2: Not, not for whooping
1: cough, presumably, but something more serious.
2: <laughs> or, well, <laughs> I don't know. That, you, you can know, see the headline: whooping cough six stand
3: trial.
4: <laughs> <laughs> no, well, the whooping cough is probably a little bit extreme, but when you've got measles and that sort of stuff that leads to encephalitis and. Uh, and uh, I'm not even sure if I use the right word then, but it leads to some sort of illness in the brain that ends up, that you end up with kids that end up being debilitated for the rest of their lives. I think in that circumstance that the parents who chose not to vaccinate their kids should bear some consequence for that.
1: Uh, See, Twelfth Man, I think in all of this, you're prepared to give the parents... Almost, autonomy? No, no, uh, no, no. And actually, parental
2: responsibility. Uh,
1: almost a property right over their child, no, in the sense that um, that they can decide what their child can and and cannot have as 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 a property right. In that they. Uh, or more or less own the child and can decide what to do rather than society can decide. So you, so, so children
2: should be property yeah. of the state rather than the parent?
1: Well, in the same way that the state says education is mandatory for children and we don't care what you as parents say, you must educate your child. So there are times when the state says that there's a limit to the rights that parents have over their children. Mm-hmm. So if whether a kid is educated is considered important enough for the state to take responsibility, then whether the kid is unnecessarily subjected to a fatal illness is, is arguably one that the state could take Look, um, uh, the decision-making
2: for. I just think we should tread cautiously down the path of handing over that sort of uh, power to the state. I mean, what if what if we say, okay, the state has the legal authority and power—not just the authority, but the power—to vaccinate every child who's born, okay, for this this group, this range of illnesses, potential illnesses. Um, and then, as we know, with the advances of medical science, there are more and more vaccinations coming on stream. Now, what if we, we just say, OK, the state can vaccinate our kids for all these new ones that come along, whatever they think's a good thing, we trust the state. So, that, I mean, we, we know that things can go wrong. Slippery know, slope, is that the argument? We know things have gone wrong before. What if, what if they started, you know, mandat- you know, as a matter of routine, vaccinating all pregnant women? for a range of things. Uh, we, we know with, from the experience with thalidomide, for example, when that was given out to thousands of women in the early stage of pregnancy, everybody thought it was safe. All the doctors were, con- you know, convinced it was safe. And it wasn't. So, I mean, I just don't think it's a good idea to, to hand over that power to the state just to, to make that decision for us. I think the way forward is through educating people, giving them the analytical and critical thinking skills to to make sound decisions for themselves and for their children rather than hand over power to the state. It it always goes badly when you you go down that path. History shows us. You give too much power to the state, bad things happen. There you go, Greg.
1: Well, a good sort of topic to raise. Thank you for that. (laughs) And we've put forward our views and we'll wait for the Facebook comments condemning the 12th man yet again perhaps or or do you want to see
4: maybe myself maybe maybe they'll condemn me for yeah. my uh, my views on the criminal might, sanctions might, that might, should be imposed can, on parents maybe
2: can you post some photos of me on my bicycle without a helmet <laughs> <laughs> okay we'll do that so, i actually i actually came a cropper one day on my bike and i hit a tree with fair in the my forehead uh, drew blood and i survived luckily so it did make me think about, yeah, you know, you can fall off your bike any time and a, and a helmet is definitely a good thing to be wearing if you hit your head. But, you know, as for compelling people to wear a helmet, I'm not convinced completely. All right,
1: we'll, we'll, we'll move on. We've covered that. Uh, now, it would be remiss of us not to mention Barnaby Joyce and that fiasco. Scott, I'm sure you've got some thoughts on the issue.
4: Um. The latest report I read was on SBS and they said then that um, senior nationals had gone to see Barnaby Joyce about the leadership of the party. Um, They were expecting he would resign the leadership and that sort of thing and we'll have a new deputy prime minister by Friday 5pm, I would have thought. That's what they're talking about, yeah.
2: Was that this evening?
4: That was this evening, yeah. Mm. And do
2: you think that's a good
4: idea? I don't know. I mean, like, I, I tend to think that it's a private matter that should have been handled privately and that sort of stuff. The only the only thing that I do have any sort of sympathy with was Tanya Pivosek made the point that um, we don't know what the uh, machinations were behind whatever her name is. I can't remember her name, you know, the jobs and that sort of stuff that she got. Champion. The, the new main squeeze. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> Yeah, the deputy squeeze. Yeah, um, yeah we, we don't know what the uh, what the situation is there. And I do think that there is possibly some questions to answer because that is public money and that's the thing that has been involved in that case, in which case then there probably is a question that he, he has to answer.
1: Okay. So if, um, uh, if she wasn't a uh, staffer and there wasn't that issue of hiring your partner, you know... Uh, Without Absolutely, approval, yeah. then what do you think? Is he? What is there we, any reason should he resign or should he be sacked? Or is
4: no? I don't. I don't mm. think he should. Mm. You know, because she, she was. You know, the only problem there is that he was involved with a staffer, mm. and he's he's gone on and found her work and that sort of stuff at higher rates of pay, mm. and we don't know what the uh, legitimate cause. What what the legitimate. Uh, whether or not the uh, thought process that went into her finding those new roles was legitimate or not, I think.
1: All right. And do you and think it's legitimate, the the sort of open criticism of him and the major discussion, you know, in the media? and. and no, I
4: don't think so. I, I right. don't think so because um, it is a, you know, a, a marriage breakdown is hard enough as it is anyway, mm. but then to have the whole thing spread across the tabloids and that sort of stuff and the, the front page of whatever... To whatever newspaper it was, saying her you know, birth of a national and that sort of stuff, you know, when I don't know whether or not his four daughters knew that she was pregnant, you know, right, and, and that's and that sort of thing to find out on the front page of the paper would be gut wrenching, right. Know? And
1: what about the fact that he has been quite prominent in in talking about the the, yeah, the value like, of traditional marriage and not yeah, wanting I other people to that. enjoy it because it's a sacred institution and then he basically pisses on the institution himself. Does that not open him up to criticism because he started, you know, he he raised the issue previously, so it's on the table?
4: It is on the table because of his actions, yes, and that is one thing that I think to myself, well, Barnaby, you know, people in glass houses shouldn't throw stones. Mm. And I do think that he has opened himself up for this because, you know, he took a position, quite a strong position, on the same-sex marriage bill. Mm. He abstained from voting for it and that sort of stuff. Um, but he did take quite a strong position on that publicly mm. and then at the same time, like you said, he was pissing all over his own marriage. Yeah,
1: know? I'm reading this article from The Shovel and uh, it says, Deputy Prime Minister Barnaby Joyce says marriage is a sacred bond between a man and a woman and another woman.
3: <laughs> he yeah. says it was
1: unfortunate Australia had decided to mess with the age-old social institution of marriage being the realm of a husband and his wife and his mistress. It's you know, satirical, obviously. Uh, the whole notion of marriage is to give children a biological mother and a biological father and a stepmother and a half-sister, he told journalists today. Why we decided to muck around with that pure form of marriage is beyond me. Yeah, it's good satire, <laughs> isn't it? So I personally think um, the fact that he um, entered into the marriage debate about what's a proper marriage and what's moral in terms of marriage means that he's open to criticism if he uh, has issues there. But as for being sacked as either you know leader or whatever, um, if it wasn't for the money issue with her being a staffer and him potentially um, transgressing the rules there... It's really up to the people of his electorate next time to bounce him out if they don't uh, want him. But, uh, you know, you can be a philanderer and be a very effective politician and people might want to quite rightly vote for you. So it's up to them to decide. Um, at the end of the day,
2: they're his employers. So I agree with everything both of you have said. <clears throat> uh, he does come across as hypocritical to some. Uh, if If he, in fact, is publicly presenting himself as some sort of Christian... Um, practitioner, or you know, a practitioner of traditional marriage, then he's certainly um, shown a little he's bit a of. He's a
4: Roman faith. Catholic, yeah.
2: yeah. So, but is he a practicing, believing Roman Catholic? I really don't know. But you know, one would assume he was, con- he was courting the, the conservative Christian vote at his last um, election to be re elected as a member of the House. Mm. So if, if in fact that was his position, then he comes across as quite hypocritical, doesn't he? Mm. But I agree with you guys. As, as you know, putting aside the um, appropriateness or or, or, or or inappropriateness of the appointment of his girlfriend to a very highly paid position with another uh, member, mm. uh, that one is definitely open to question. As for him philandering, that's his personal business and. Mm. Basically, leave him alone.
1: But on the other hand, with this new baby, if he fails to vaccinate it, then throw him in jail
2: for six months. Yeah. Probably. (laughs) Or encourage the child to sue him.
4: We we throw him in jail if if his child child gets sick or his child infects others.
1: And he has intentionally not vaccinated that child. Exactly, yes. Yes. Now,
4: look, I mean, I'm prepared to have some sort of... Um, you know, if parents have got genuine, legitimate concerns that can be backed up by a doctor, mm. like his older sibling got very sick when we got, got him vaccinated, so I don't want to repeat the I don't want to repeat the whole thing again. Fair enough. Mm. But if you don't have anything, you're just relying on that bloody idiot's nonsense about you know autism. Then no.
1: Sorry, I didn't mean to. I didn't mean to reopen the can worms. It was just, <laughs> it was just for a joke that one. But, um, yeah,
4: okay,
0: but that's Barnaby, awesome. in our yeah.
1: view, you're safe for the moment. But just make sure you vaccinate that kid. Just as a matter of interest, this whole notion of well, if you, if you, uh, Barnaby hadn't talked about sacred traditional marriage in the way that you did, then we would remain quiet. Um, Just as a matter of a legal principle, if you're in court at some stage and you're in the witness box, normally the opposition cannot bring forward evidence of your bad character. But the exception to that is if you volunteer that you are of good character, then in that situation the opposition can say, well, you started it talking about your character, now we can introduce stuff about, you know, that otherwise would have been inadmissible. So it's um, a way of thinking that's found its way into our rules of evidence, and don't take legal advice from a podcast, all states are different, and seek legal ah. advice before you give your testimony, So with all I those caveats, the, that's just an interesting little sideline that I thought you might enjoy, yeah. Yeah. Um, Oh, I just I came across the thing on Facebook, uh, and I don't think it's available now. It was, it was the the odds on um, the name of the baby for Barnaby. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> yes. And they had some interesting ones here.
4: Do uh, they know if it's a boy or a girl?
1: They, they had Kieran at six dollars fifty, uh, Julia at eight dollars. Um, but the people who framed this market really had a sense of of humour. Um, Donald at a dollar one. Uh, Pauline at five hundred and one, <laughs> and and Farlap at one hundred and fifty one, <laughs> and Boo yeah, so, Boo yeah. $59. So anyway, I'm going to hand it to the people there at Sportsbet. They had a bit of fun in framing their market with some pretty crazy names.
0: So, dear listener, not too long ago, you looked at your podcast app and saw that a new episode of the Iron Fist and Velvet Glove podcast was available to download. Did you silently think to yourself, Wait, a new podcast? I like listening to those guys. If so, then you qualify as a potential donor to the podcast. Your donation will help cover some expenses, but more importantly your donation tells the boys that they are on the right track and to keep up the good work. A dollar a show is all they ask. Go to their website at ironfistvelvetglove.com.au and click on the donations link.
1: Twelfth man, you were irate this week. I was. You're ap- apoplectic <laughs> with rage uh, over not the drum.
2: Apoplectic, but so there was
1: an episode of the drum on the 9th of February where there is some panellists which included a um, Muslim Woman Association CEO, Maha Abdo, and there was also... I- An ex Muslim who was appearing at a secular party event, and I don't have her name in front of me, but she was sort of on Um, satellite or on a video link. What was her name? Hamid. Hamid. Hamid Hamid Assad or something? Yeah. Sadiya Hamid. Right. So, what happened, 12th man, that got you so angry?
2: What happened? uh, What happened was it all started out nicely, and I thought, well, this this looks interesting. Finally, uh, the drum is um, giving giving some airtime to an ex-Muslim. I mean, the drum, you know, it, it has its moments. I, I don't watch it religiously every day, but I often turn it on that time of day to see if there's anything interesting, and that day there was. And I thought, I got quite excited because, as you know, I, I haven't heard very many ex-Muslims mm-hmm. speaking, least of all on national television. And it was interesting and and obviously quite deliberate that they invited um, um, Maha Abdul, the CEO of the Muslim Women's Association, um, to appear. And and I I don't have a problem with that. I mean, obviously... You want both sides of the story. Well, it's not just both sides because there's usually more than two sides, but it's it's good to have somebody who can present a counter-argument and hopefully an effective counter-argument the sad part of the program was she didn't present any counter-argument whatsoever and all she did was um, play victim, mm. um, speak in a, a very condescending manner to the guest speaker from, who, who'd travelled all the way from the UK. Mm. Uh, she was extremely condescending, telling her that she was... You know, her, her and people like her were haters you know, that they hated Islam or something like that or they hated Muslims. And uh, Miss Hamid said, look, hang on a minute, you know, we, do, we, we don't hate Muslims. You know, we are Muslims. We don't hate Muslims. What we have a problem with is Islamic doctrine. So um, Abdo continued to go on. She wasn't winning the, uh, the conversation. She wasn't, you know, sort of getting her way. She started weeping. Mm. She looked like she was going to literally break down and cry on camera. Julia Baird then shut down the conversation so that um, her one of her panelists wouldn't cry on on, on camera. Yes. But I mean, I think I think Julia Baird is is very sympathetic to people of religion. Yes, and and she's entitled to, to be so. I, I don't have a problem with that. But she certainly uh, was not working for the people of Australia who were tuning in and trying to learn something useful about this very important discussion that we need to have about Islam. What, you know, What is it that causes all the problems that we're seeing around the world and starting to see to some small degree in Australia? And yet Julia Baird shut down the conversation... Because someone started to cry. I thought yeah. that was just ridiculous. Yeah,
1: the ex-Muslim lady was um, uh, saying, well, it's, it's part of Islamic doctrine that men can beat their wives. And um, Maha Abda was saying, oh, no, no, no. No, it's not no, true. No, that's, that's, that's not... I've been working so hard for that not to happen, which no doubt she is, but it refuses to acknowledge the wide spectrum of belief within the Muslim community, and this is the thing that people who are going to debate in this area need to get a grip of, is to say, well, you mightn't think that way, but lots of other people do, Mm. and the ex-Muslim lady was saying that to her credit, and the compare, uh, Julia Baird, said, oh, we can all agree that there would not be a single Islamic scholar in Australia who believes that a man can beat his wife. Really? Yes. Did she say that? She I, said I, I that. Missed that. Yeah. Yes. So she was very biased in her support. She is biased. of the of the Muslim woman, and um, so yeah, it was a very biased. Um,
2: and, and the other two panelists hardly hardly got a chance to speak. Yeah. I mean, the 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 academic from uh, is it Sydney University? Yes. Uh, yeah. I mean, he he usually speaks very intelligently. I've seen him on the panel before. And uh, I would have been quite happy to hear his opinion on the on the topic. He, mm. I think he only spoke once. The other guy, the uh, Sydney Liberal Councillor Craig Chunk, he just came out with the typical social justice warrior rubbish about, oh, we can all be respectful to each other or something like that. And that was all he, about all he could manage. So he was a complete waste of space... I mean, why don't they invite the Iron Fist onto the panel sometime? Gee, you know, let's, let's have a real discussion about these very important issues. Indeed.
1: Why don't they? Um, Scott, did you manage to see it?
4: I saw it on iview, and yeah. um, I had to agree with everything Paul wrote in his email to them, you know. And Julia Baird, she did an appalling job, you nice. know. Um, it was really bad, actually. And it, and it makes me wonder whether or not she's been told that she has to massage people in a certain way or something like that. Because it it, it didn't strike me as her finest performance. And I'm a bit like you, Paul. I, I record it every day, but I don't watch it every day. But um, I do tend to – I flick it on, find out what's on, and then just delete it if I don't want to watch it. But, um, yeah, it is – it is a good show, but it um, it certainly let us let us down last Friday, didn't it? Very badly, I think. So you yeah. fired
1: off a letter of complaint to the ABC, an email, and we have not heard anything back at this not stage. Yet. Yep. Not yet. Yep. But
2: look, I, I, I think considering my letter was pretty forceful, if I can mm. put it that way, and I think it was reasonably well written, and I... Um, I wouldn't hold my breath waiting for an no, answer. No, I wouldn't. But no. I don't imagine the ABC reply to every email they get. But surely it's incumbent on them to re- reply to fairly serious and, you know, uh, thoughtful criticism of programs. And I think my, my letter was was pretty well-structured and um, worth, worth a response.
1: We'll wait to see. But that wasn't the only, you know, biased interview on the ABC in recent times, dear listener. So... Uh, Regular listeners would know that there's an organisation called the National Secular Lobby, which Brian Morris has headed up, and he's got a number of ambassadors who are spokespersons for the organisation that he's trying to get on to be interviewed and stuff like that. So there was a, uh, a radio interview on ABC Sydney Radio with Cassie McCulloch as the presenter, James Carlton from God Forbid was one of the panellists. Michael Jensen, uh, Anglican priest, was the other panellist. And Chris Schott was representing the National Secular Lobby. And I've got a link to the National Secular Lobby website page where they described the sort of disaster as it unfolded, or not disaster, but um, how the interview went through. And I've got little clips of it here, um, And I'm just going to play the first one for you.
0: Problems with the type of atheist that is represented at that convention. I think uh, there's some interesting things to say about them because I know that People who are atheists have problems with the, the sort of tone that often comes out from Dawkins and co. However, because, because why? Because he's particularly doer. Because it's nasty. It really is uh, contemptuous, nasty, uh, and also uh, people say almost fundamentalist. I would say he picks on the straw man. Uh, I think any reasonable person would say that religion sometimes takes malevolent forms. I think that's give that's us an a given. example of of him being like that. Oh, I mean, just have to look at his Twitter account where he just writes off uh, Islam or he addresses in his book uh, The God Delusion. He tends to take on a very fundamentalist reading of Scripture as if that is the norm. Uh, and it, sure, he might be dealing with some American Christians at one level, but he's not dealing with the sophisticated tradition, rational, reasonable tradition of Christian thought, which is, which is an extra, a complex and nuanced thing. So he tends to not take... Uh, religious thought at its most nuanced and complex. I mean, not just tense. He never takes it at its, mo- at its most complex and nuanced. Mm. It's interesting. I've heard people say that he's a little joyless, you know, that his view of the world is a little black and white uh, without nuance. So, so that
1: gives you a little bit of the flavour of the lead-up before Chris Schott could even get a shot in. Um, they really set him up. And a couple of things... One is, I've heard um, Michael Jensen speak before, and everything he have said there, uh, I've heard before. So it should not have come as a surprise to Chris Schott, this line of thinking of saying that new atheists are nasty, and to say that they take a a a dumbed-down view of religion and they don't appreciate the nuance and the scholarship of religion. Like, that's a big sort of Michael Jensen thing. So Chris should have known that was coming, and I don't know that he did because he got sidetracked on some other issues that sort of didn't help. But you could hear the interviewer was... Anyway... You know, on this discussion, they go for five minutes, 54 seconds before Chris gets two minutes to try and talk about the separation of church and state. Anyway, um, another little bit of a clip to sort of play uh, in relation to this.
0: That's our problem. Yes. Um, So you're saying really that atheists are their own worst enemies in terms of turning an opinion in some ways because uh, there are no answers.
1: Well, he wasn't saying that. She actually put that into his mouth because he said nothing about no answers. So she just introduced that because that was her interpretation. He didn't say that at all. He was happy to adopt it. But the, the laughing at atheists that this, that this ABC um, presenter does, let me just highlight it for you so you can pick it up.
0: Yes. Um, so you're saying, really, that atheists are their own worst enemies. Um, so you're saying, really, that atheists are their own worst enemies. Um, so you're saying, really, that atheists are their own worst enemies. It's such a, Tell me
1: that's not biased.
2: It, but it's, it's a, that, such a shallow cliche of atheism, isn't it? That atheists are joyless. That having lost religion, they've lost the joy of life. Yep. I mean, what a, an absolute... You know, stupid Mm cliché. And and you notice Michael Jensen keeps using the word fundamentalist because that's the one that's used against religious people, so he's throwing it back at him.
1: You know, the sort of nastiness and joylessness that he was accusing new atheists of Mm -hmm. was what he was exhibiting in his accusation of them. Uh, Exactly. So... Chris, you should have seen that coming and you should have made note of it because it was going to come. Um, But anyway, um, the conversation got sidetracked. But it was a very... You know, you can listen to the whole thing, dear listener, but it was a very biased interview and... Uh, These people are polished in that they
2: do this all the time, the likes of Michael Jensen. He's on the drum regularly. Yes. Yes. And he's, as as you said before, he's totally predictable.
1: And even though uh, Christopher Schott is an ex-politician and senator and experienced... Minister for science, wasn't he? um, You just need practice at talking about these issues and... Mm. and look up what these people are going to say. You, yeah. could, you could know that he
2: was going to say that. So um,
1: anyway, Michael that was... Michael Jensen,
2: don't forget, has a PhD in theology, uh, yeah, I assume. In fairyology. Well, yeah. no, I was going to say you may as well have a PhD in um, Middle Earth studies. Y- indeed. indeed. I mean, it's the same sort of fairy tale nonsense. It... And no matter how sophisticated and nuanced he thinks it is, yes. it's still fairy tale studies.
1: Exactly, yep. It's it's like somebody, you know, studying the grim fairy tales. When they were written... Uh, the that would differences be more useful. Be, ..the differences between them, uh, the influences on the author, um, all sorts of social commentary stuff. Uh, but then, most people don't actually believe the grim fairy tales were true, but this guy does. So he sort of takes the scholarly side of examining all that initial stuff that I was talking about. But overlaid with that, he actually believes the grim fairy tale. That's the problem.
2: And and then he thinks he's qualified to criticise Richard Dawkins, who actually has a real PhD and has studied real science. And, you know, I've read several of his books. He doesn't come across as joyless to me. In fact, he comes across as quite filled with awe and wonder and joy at at, at, at nature and the yeah. complexity and um, amazingness of it. Yeah. If so, that was a word. You know, See,
1: Chris... I've
4: never I've never I've never read anything that Richard Dawkins has written, but I've seen him on YouTube and I've listened to him on podcasts and I I I think you're right, Paul. He is alive within in, inquiry, isn't he? Absolutely. You know? So, you know, if
1: if this was why I wouldn't be invited on the panel, but I I would have said, look, you've just accused new atheists of being being nasty and doer and you've just really hammered one of our leaders in Richard Dawkins. Do you mind if I just quickly bash Mother Teresa or the Pope for a good 30 seconds like you just have? and then we'll continue our discussion? Because, you know, you've just given this guy a free ride to bash one of the leaders of New Atheism. Can I just have the same and equal time to give a bit of a serve to the current Pope and how he's um, giving special... You know, he's doing nothing against child abuse in Chile, for example, and promoting people who are known to have um, allowed it to happen. So... I've, I,
2: I, even on on Facebook, I've seen people who otherwise were, you know, not particularly religious, have a crack at Richard Dawkins um, on the grounds that he was accused of making some sexist tweets or something at some point on Twitter. I think some people think that they earn brownie points from, you know... Pulling from tearing down great intellectual giants like Richard Dawkins. Mm. Do, you, do you get that feeling sometimes?
1: Sure, and people take things out of context mm. and um, I think that happens a lot to Sam Harris where they'll take phrases of what he said and yeah. stitch it up Same. in very fraudulent ways and other people will sort of see these things mm. and think it's real as well. I've so, seen that too.
2: Yeah. I've seen Sam Harris attacked on yep. very, very thin grounds. Yeah. Mm.
1: All right, change of topic. Back to the um, religious freedom panel. Mm -hmm. And today was the last day. So, dear listener, if you're listening to this podcast, um, because we're recording on the 14th, then um, hopefully you got a submission in to the panel. So um, uh, our friend Dean Stratton... Um, sent me his updated final version, so if you're interested in that, it's on the website, and one of the additions I noticed in it, 12th Man and Velvet Glove, was paragraph 39b, where Dean says, it seems unlikely that a Christian school would expel a student merely because he or she is not quite convinced of the literal truth of original sin, the virgin birth, or the resurrection, all of which core Christian doctrines. One suspects not many students would be left if such beliefs were strictly required. On the other hand, it seems more likely that a Christian school would reject or expel a student for being gay or for having same-sex parents, as some already have. A right of positive religious discrimination looks more like a device to persecute minorities than to preserve religious identity." It's Absolutely. A, it's a really yeah. good point. I hadn't heard anybody say that before in so many words, or even just the idea, but he's dead right that they're they're picking this particular part of their so-called doctrine, which is one of the more nebulous ones to sort of uh, prove as part of the doctrine, because I don't know that the Bible's that specific on it. Um, and some of these more fundamental issues... They don't seem to care what people believe. So, um, yeah, they're just picking on a particular characteristic
2: they, yeah. that they
1: mm. feel they want to discriminate against.
2: I, I suppose on that note, um, it's very hard to detect whether or not a student actually believes. But it's quite easy mm. to detect um, overtly homosexual behaviour. It's certainly easy to de- detect to. Same-sex parents rolling up to pick up the child every yes. afternoon after school. Those things are more obvious and easier to detect, so they can mm. actually pick on things like that more easily, can't they? Mm. True. They can't read the, the mind of every student.
1: Yes, but they don't seem to inquire either. You know, If it was so important <laughs>
2: to you, then um, perhaps you'd ask the students...
1: Perhaps if they it should. was so
2: important to you, that Perhaps they should um... actually, you know, it might not be such a bad thing if they started expelling all the students that that were not willing to make an affirmation of absolute faith in the core doctrines. Mm. Just expel them. I'm, right now. Here I am. I'm encouraging all you mm. principals of Christian schools. Please do an audit of your student body as soon as possible and expel all the non-believers. That way we might get numbers up for the state school system and uh, might provide a little more incentive to our political so-called leaders to properly fund uh, secular state education.
1: I don't think they'll do it. They'll want the school fees. And um, you're right, they a sweep it under the carpet, all those other things. And the problem is that same-sex issues are in their face, whereas the other issues are, are hidden. Yeah, that's true. Mm. Um, I found an article from Eternity magazine which they say that the panel received 13,500 submissions. Oh, shit. I don't... (laughs) 13,500.
4: Well, let's hope that at least half of them are secular, but I doubt they are. I don't think they will be, but... um, there you go. I would imagine it's probably going to be 80%, 20%. You know, 80% would be religious and 20% would be secular.
2: Yeah. I, I think that's a conservative estimate, Scott. Yeah. I think uh, because we know ACL and other religious organisations were actively uh, campaigning, encouraging their followers to absolutely swamp the review panel yep. with their calls for religious privilege.
4: Yeah, that's very
1: true. Uh, and uh, on that score, actually, just of um, of religious groups swamping um, panels, let me just try and find... It's somewhere a bit later on that we're going to talk about it, but in Western Australia, they had a review of um, a sister dying happening, I believe. Um, yeah, so... Uh, So there was an inquiry in Western Australia um, uh, regarding euthanasia and there's a report here from Catholic News saying that more than 700 people and organisations have weighed into the euthanasia debate by making a written submission to a West Australian parliamentary inquiry. A Roy Morgan poll in November found 89% of Western Australians believed a doctor should be able to give a lethal dose. To a hopelessly ill patient. But the parliamentary inquiry has been swamped with hundreds of submissions from opponents of euthanasia, with more than 58% highlighting concerns over legalising euthanasia, including weak safeguards enabling abuse of the system. So, while the population is 89% in favour of euthanasia, the parliamentary inquiry in Western Australia had submissions that were 58% against. Voluntary euthanasia. So that's just an indication of what's likely to happen with the religious freedom panel, I reckon. But I think you're right, Paul. I reckon it's going to be somewhere in the 90% be calling for more freedom. That's what you'd expect because
2: Mm. normally secular people very few of them would have any reason to make a submission at all. They would, it wouldn't even occur to them to make an, a submission. Yeah. It's only highly motivated people like us with a, obviously a very deep interest in the topic would, would bother.
1: Yeah. So anyway, uh, so that was um, going back to the um, Freedom From Religion Foundation, I think they were called. What was their name again? Uh, just trying. Freedom for Faith. They wrote that 105-page submission, and lots of church groups basically said we support that 105-page document. And there's a whole bunch of religions listed there who support it. And one of the things in there that they propose is a religious freedom act, which would establish religious freedom as a right rather than a grudging concession. So it's already a should... right.
4: God's sake.
1: Yeah.
2: What more do they want?
1: (sighs) So, uh, And the groups who are supporting that are um, Australian Christian Churches, which includes Hillsong, the Baptist, Presbyterian Church of Australia, Seventh-day Adventist, Anglican Church, Diocese of Sydney, the Barnabas Fund, Assembly of Confessing Congregations within the Uniting Church, the Christian Reformed Churches of Australia, Free Reformed Churches of Australia, EV Church, Church Communities Australia and the Sydney Chinese Christian Churches Association have all signed up to support that document. So we shall see what happens on that score. Um, do you
4: think sorry. that, um, sorry to cut you off, do you think that Ruddick will actually go with that suggestion and... and suggest to Parliament that we should have some kind of religious freedom law or not?
1: He was going to until he read my submission about the Satanists potentially yeah, exactly. taking advantage, yeah. and that was the only thing that scared him off. Let's hope. Mm. By the way, dear listener, I've, I've had contact with a Satanist group in Australia, and there's a link on the website. If you're looking to join a Satanist group who might be doing some activism down the track, then click on the link and join up. So... Uh, more news to come on that score. So,
4: Oh, really? That's really interesting. Mm.
1: Now, um, actually, they're called... Uh, what are they called? Satanic Australia. Look that up on Facebook, and it's a closed group. You have to apply, and they'll they'll let you in if you answer questions correctly. <laughs> you're looking at me peculiarly, 12th
2: man. You're you, you worried about it? Well, I'm just wondering if you're already a member, because right, right. you seem to be pretty... Interested in Satanism there, recently? I,
1: I, I am interested, yes. I, I, I see it as as an, a great form of protest. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, um, so anyway, there'll be a link for that on the website. Now, gentlemen, last week, when I was talking about Malcolm Turnbull and uh, how he was so enraptured with our relationship with the United States of Australia and... I thought that was perhaps not such a great thing. And you said, well, I thought you were indicating, no, 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 we need America's help because uh, the risk of Indonesia invading us is quite high. I mean, Indonesia you did raise. Fair enough. So,
4: yeah, we did, we did raise Indonesia, but I don't mm. think either of us thought that there was going to be a, uh, an army landing on our northwest shore anytime soon. True. you know he... so i don 't want to overstate he, uh...
1: what you were saying, but you were concerned about anyway as the 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 topic is you know should we be concerned about Indonesia invading us, and for that matter, should we be concerned about China invading us and dear listener, a special treat for you, a new contributor to the podcast Han too is uh, I recorded an interview with Han just yesterday um, during a massive Brisbane Thunderstorm. And um, so here it is. I'll play it for you now, and it's everything you needed to know about Australia's military and our capacity to deal with Indonesia and China in a nutshell. Dear listener, we've got a new character to introduce to you to the podcast. His pseudonym is Han Tu, and he's uh, one of my mates, and he's a bit of an expert on Indonesia. And given our discussion last week about... Uh, our alliance with America and how we needed to foster that because at any minute now the Indonesians could invade us. I thought I'd get um, Han too on to talk about Indonesia because he's a bit of an expert. So, Han, welcome to the podcast.
5: Thanks a lot. Um, It's nice to be here. Lovely to be uh, invited to uh, discuss a little bit about Indonesia, a very um, important uh, part of my life.
1: Yes, well... Just give the listener uh, what background you can, because I understand, you know, certain parts are sensitive and you can't say them, but what can you say that would give the listener some confidence that you actually know what you're talking about?
5: Okay, uh, that, you know, that's all fair enough. Um, uh, the bottom line, I suppose, with all this is that uh, I was uh, teaching in Indonesia, in Indonesian language, to Indonesian students um, at a master's level, um, and talking to them about uh, military science and uh, a few other topics related to military science.
1: Yep. And and you're actually considering a PhD of some sort at the moment?
5: That's right, yeah. I've been accepted to do a PhD. I have a, um, a number of master's degrees and uh, do a PhD uh, in um, Indonesian military history and Indonesian military politics.
1: Yep. So by way of background, last week um, I read an article that was talking about Malcolm Turnbull and how our relationship with with America was fantastic, as close as it could be, and we're a rock-solid ally. And I was suggesting maybe that wasn't the best thing because with friends like America at times, who needs enemies? Because they, they get us into a lot of trouble. And my colleagues on the podcast were saying, well, we really need America because what if Indonesia decides to invade us? And I put forward that the chances of that were fairly slim um, and that wasn't an issue to worry about. But am I right or am I wrong or is there a different answer, Too.
5: Yeah, I, I, I think that um, in, in some ways that you're both right. You are absolutely absolutely right as far as Indonesia being a threat to Australia. There's no... There's no doubt that in the uh, foreseeable future that uh, Indonesia poses no threat to Australia whatsoever. Um, If we look at um, how you decide whether something is a threat or not, there's two parts that you need to look at and consider. The first part is, does the one party have uh, intent um, towards another party? And the second part is, do they have the capability and uh, we can look at Indonesia in that light. We can say, do they have at the present moment any intent to uh, attack Australia? And the answer to that is absolutely not. There's no, no reason why Indonesia would attack Australia, no reason uh, through domestic politics, no reason through international politics. In fact, Indonesia being the largest economy in Southeast Asia is very keen to maintain its relationship with Australia because Australia provides a lot of um, goods and a lot of services that Indonesia doesn't have and can't provide for themselves and if you think about the food um that Australia provides to Indonesia beef in particular
2: mm-hmm. um without
5: that they would uh, indeed find it very difficult to um feed their feed their people so there's no way that they're going to stop that and uh to think that Indonesia would attack Australia over food is just, um, uh, in in terms of old English or old Australians, malarkey, there's just no chance that that's going to happen. If you look at domestic politics, uh, there's no reason why Australia would be put forward as a target for Indonesia. So in, in terms of intent, there's no intent for Indonesia to attack Australia. Mm-hmm. Then if we look at capability, um, Indonesia has a very large standing army, but its navy is um, really... Uh, a number of old rust buckets and a couple of uh, perhaps uh, ships that uh, would hardly pose any sort of threat to anybody except themselves.
1: How's their uh, their
5: submarine going? Well, I I used to laugh because uh, some of the guys I knew over there would uh, collect their submarine every every year. They had an old Russian whiskey class submarine and it was tied up to the dock and every year they'd all climb aboard and... The uh, the submarine would be submerged at the dock, and they had a crane there just in case the thing couldn't make it up again. Um, and but doing that, they all, you know, oh gee, that's over for another year where I can collect my submariners' pay. And um, that's that's about their capability with the uh, submarines. They really um, are not uh, able to. Uh, operate in uh, what we would call blue water they they would have, they are capable perhaps in white water, but uh, white water if you look on a on a naval map you 'll see that uh, there's white water which is shallow and blue water which is deep mm-hmm. and it 's unlikely that they would operate very successfully outside of their own archipelago so for them to mount some sort of a martyr um, let 's go back one step and look at what you would need militarily to um, have a beachhead on Australia. Mm-hmm. In 1942, the Japanese did a very large study um, of what they would require to form a beachhead in the north of Australia, and they found that when they did their uh, all their estimates, that they would need a minimum of nine divisions. Nine divisions means uh, something in order of 100,000 supported soldiers um, landed in the one place at the one time, so somehow you've got to get all those people from one place to another. The Japanese. How, how, how
1: many people course, could you put on a troop ship? Like if you were having how many?
5: Well, if, you know how long's a piece of string? Um, yeah. How big's the troop ship? You know, if you look at something like the Canberra that was used in the Falklands, you yep. might get uh, something in the order of three or four thousand onto each ship. Um, if you look at uh, a big luxury cruise liner that you might want to convert into a troop ship you could probably think about putting a division on that without equipment because they are able to take uh, the people, but then you've got to have all the equipment. You've got to think about the support equipment, the vehicles, the tanks, the yep. artillery, and on and on it goes. And all this stuff has to be um, transported on cargo ships. Yep. So you have an armada of uh, civilian vessels that would be escorted uh, because they don't have the military vessels to take any sort, anything like that number of people. Um, you'd have to have, um, civilian ships that have been converted and then, um, the difficulty is getting these, these are not roll on, roll off type ships. And so it'd be quite difficult to land all this equipment, uh, in mm-hmm. a very short period of time. Specialized military ships even find it difficult to do this sort of thing. And in fact, American Australia every two years, uh, operate um, in off the Queensland coast, Rockhampton, we're all aware of the exercise that take place off there mm-hmm. to actually do this and land, you know, some few hundred, thou- a few thousand troops in in an exercise. Whereas we're talking now, trying to land a hundred thousand troops to be really quite effective, and that's just not um, possible for the Indonesians. They don't have the shipping, they don't have the naval vessels to support that. That type of uh, a martyr that would have to be formed they don 't have the air support, they don 't have surveillance they don 't have any submarine warfare and order to develop all those sort of capabilities takes a very, very long time it 's not a matter of just going out and buying the ships for us uh, in Australia, we have long been looking at uh, anti submarine warfare anti surface warfare we 've looked at submarines, and as as we 've seen we 're going to spend another fifty billion. Dollars on submarines to support our capability north of Australia to stop somebody from actually landing on Australia. It's a
1: it's so a bit of a, a sore, at, it's a bit of a sore point with me to the fifty billion on some on those submarines. But we'll bypass that for the moment. Keep keep going.
5: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't I don't necessarily support the spending of that sort of money on submarines, but. Um, that is what the government's decided to do and uh, they've decided that submarines are the, the best deterrent at this point in time to stop people coming across the air-sea gap. So if you think about um, aircraft, if you, you say, OK, well, we won't do it by ship, we'll do it by aircraft and we'll have paratroopers come to Australia and we'll transport them in, in, um, in aircraft. Now, if you look at um, a normal... Um, sort of aircraft like a C-130 which would be uh, capable of uh, dropping paratroopers, something like that uh, will carry probably 80 to 100 fully armed uh, men that are going to drop out of the aircraft and uh, so you can do the maths as well yeah. as I can if you want to do 100,000, you need a 1,000 aircraft and yeah. um, they've got you know a very small number of aircraft uh, that are capable of uh, dropping off paratroops and uh, most of those are old Uh, B model Hercules aircraft and they're pretty much beyond their capability at this point in time. So the Indonesians neither have intent nor do they have capability and the capability we would see them building the capability. They would be uh, giving us some sort of indication of their intent a long time before they would even be capable of doing anything against Australia. So you really need to be thinking Ten years uh, advanced lead time from when you start developing these sort of capabilities, you're probably even thinking more like 20 years, particularly against uh, you know an angry um, Western, well-developed society like ours that has uh, quite a lot of high technology, cap- you know, high technology available to us in um, in in a military sense. So you've got to then try and counter the technology that the opposition has, and the Indonesians would take a very, very long time to develop any sort of level of capability, skills to counter Australia. Okay. In,
1: in so so let's accept then that Indonesia is such a long way off that we could see it coming a mile away and do something about it if if it was mm. going to happen. What about China, if China decided to,
5: you know... Att- this, is when, this is when you start looking at uh, who your friends are Yep. And um, and that's why at the very start I go back to the comment that I said that you're both right in many ways, yep. um, and you're right as far as Indonesia concerned. But you, you know your your colleague is also right as far as having America as a friend. Yep. Um, think about ch- China at the moment. Um, have some experimental aircraft of one aircraft carrier, they could probably mount a couple of squadrons of, of aircraft and they have not even a full carrier group available to them at the present time. And America usually around the place operates four full carrier groups. So when you look at American capability versus Chinese capability, it's cheese and chalk for power projection. Yep. And so the Chinese uh, attempting to project power through the Indonesian archipelago would also find it very difficult. This is why we need to keep Indonesia as a friend because, A, the Indonesians would want to stop them from projecting power through their archipelago in the first instance. Yep. And they, they would need to do that because to get to Australia, there's really three routes through Indonesia or around New Guinea or you're going to have to come a very long way around. And to do that, our capability with um, our submarines... Our anti-surface uh, capability and our anti-subsurface capability would make it very difficult for even the Chinese to bring an armada large enough to actually land on Australian soil. Yep. Now, it's, it's, it's well and good to say, oh, they've got a million soldiers, but you know, how are they going to get here? They're going to swim. Yep. You know, that's, that's the bottom line. That's why our white papers have always focused on the air-sea gap to the North of Australia and have always said that any threat to Australia would be through, not necessarily from, the Indonesian archipelago. And that's a big distinction between those two things. And even China at this point in time, there is no way that they could threaten Australia in that way.
1: Right. Yep. Okay, let's assume that China uh, ramps up and gets enough equipment. Can we trust the Americans to help us? If
5: oh, Well, that's, that's a question that you've got to ask. So when... When you look at spending on uh, on on military on arms and all that sort of stuff, and the actual uh, money that's spent around the world, America um, outspends everyone else combined. Mm. And so you look at you look at that, and you go, if you look at all the wars that have been fought since uh, Vietnam, who who has won, and which side do you think? it's best to be on, whether they are likely to support you or not. And the answer is is that uh, if you're on the American side, you're going to win. Um, if you're on the American side, you're not likely to lose. Um, let's oh, put it that way. Because um, unless, you're in a, yeah, unless
1: you're in Afghanistan, maybe? or.
5: I mean, it's interesting you talk about these places. Yeah. Is that, um, you know, who wins, who loses. Uh, if you want to go back to the 1970s and talk about Vietnam, everyone talks about, um, you know how america lost the war in vietnam um, wow. America, ha- has america really lost the war if you're you know uh, you know living in middle class america um, you've got a pretty nice life if you're living in vietnam until very recently you were still living in the stone age yes. so who won and who lost you know that's that's a it's, it's a moot point yeah but had had they never one way to fight a war.
1: had they never entered in vietnam the case. people still would have a very comfortable life in north america irrespective but I, I guess that that one doesn't matter so much but
5: um well it's 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 where you've got to look at uh a history and about the insurance policies that australia has taken over the last uh you know 50 years yep um in order to think that we are safe from you know threats of a of a more global nature you know you, you look at russia and and, and again is Russia a threat to Australia? Do they have the capability? Yeah, they, they probably could if they focused all of their military capability and all their transport capability on coming to Australia, but they're a long way. Yep. And, you know, if you've got friends like America, you know, the Russians showed in World War Two how you need to uh, fight these sort of wars and uh, it's, to, it's to burn behind uh, as you go. As you fight all the way from point A to point B, you, you just have a scorched earth policy so that uh, they, their lines of communication, their lines of supply get longer and longer and longer and more difficult, more difficult, and your lines of supply get shorter and shorter. You know, is a very good example of that. Um, we could have done much better in Malaysia uh, before the fall of Singapore had the Australian High Command had its way because Australia wanted to use a scorched earth policy against the Japanese, but the Brits thought that Fortress Singapore was... Uh, Was impregnable, and so they said, "No, we don't need to have that sort of policy." Um, Of course, uh, as we know now, in retrospect, uh, the Brits were wrong, Um, and the scorched earth earth policy would have worked uh, uh, much better than their plan.
1: Yep. So, uh, when talking minor countries, you know, like Indonesia, they just don't have the capability. When we're talking major countries like China or Russia. We could assume the Americans would be interested enough to stop them dominating uh, this part of the world, and would would step in just um, in terms of protecting their own patch, if if nothing else.
5: Mm, that's and, an interesting assumption. You know, um, yeah, I, I like the word you used. We can assume. Yep. Um, um, I I tend well, to think more. Well, than,
1: like a question.
5: We can, so <laughs> we can hope. <laughs> right. We can hope that that's what's going to happen. Yep. Um, again. Uh, you know, China would have to. We would see the threat coming. Um, at the moment, there is no intent from China. Yep. Um, yep. Let alone do they have the capability. There is no intent, and so the threat doesn't exist. Um, do they have the capability in, in the future? Should they change their intent? Uh, that's a, that's another good question. And uh, I would have to sit down and carefully look at what uh, the Chinese capability is. But even the capability Australia has today would probably be enough to counter a, an, a you know an attack from China because the distances that are involved, the capability, the amount of equipment, the amount of people that you need to land is, yeah. is enormous yep. to actually try and form that beachhead. Yep. and um, it's you know you're talking superpower stuff to, to get to this point point. Yep. and China is not yet in the realms of a military superpower, and Russia is probably past its prime. Yep. and uh, the Americans could do it, uh, but, you know, stay on the right side of America, no intent, uh, capability, do the Americans have the capability? Yes, they do, but they don't have intent, so America doesn't form a threat. Yep. So you stay on the right side of the Americans, which I think is uh, a very good policy, and the insurance that we've taken out by going into Afghanistan, by uh, supporting them in Iraq and these other places, that has um, d- d- given d- d- us, the insurance policy that we do, need, I think, do, uh, to do you think it does though? The, do you think that? Do you think
1: like the present administration with Trump? Do you think that cuts anything with him? Like, if if somebody did decide to invade us, somebody like Trump, I just have the feeling wouldn't wouldn't pay heed to any of that history and would just decide in the moment whether it was worth him. Worth America's interests getting involved or not, and they wouldn't care about the history.
5: Mm. It's interesting that you raise that point, and and the point that I would raise. It was actually I was watching Question Time today uh, for the Federal Parliament, and Peter Dutton got out uh, to answer a question uh, concerning uh, Manus and Nauru. And uh, he quoted some facts. Um, I think that another 135 had gone from Madison and Nauru to the United States. And they had actually departed and uh, the United States had accepted these people. Now, that uh, agreement had been made between Turnbull and Obama and Trump said that he would not honour that and finally came around to honouring that agreement. And that agreement has been honoured. Yep. And it's totally against what he personally wanted to do. However... The administration, uh, in the United States had enough power to convince him that he needed to honour his, uh, the America's commitments to Australia and to anybody else. And so I think you can take that as a, an indicator as to which way it would go. And I believe because of the history and because of the way we have acted over the past, um, you know, it's getting on towards 80 or 90 years, um, I think that uh, we would be able to count on the Americans for a lot of support.
1: Okay, Orhan too. I think you covered the Indonesian issue for the dear listener and um, and I'll call on you again in the future as issues crop up.
5: Yep, I'm willing and pleased to be part of such a wonderful podcast. <laughs> <laughs>
1: All right, Han Tu, I'll let you get back to whatever you were you were doing, and um, I'll see you Thursday night.
5: <laughs> All right, mate. All good.
1: All right, thanks, mate. See ya.
5: Catch you then. Bye. Yeah, bye.
1: So there you go, gentlemen. That's Han too, and hopefully we'll hear from him down the track as to matters military and in particular Indonesia. So it's amazing the people that you meet through life. Um, of you know, as you get to our age, getting on a bit, you come across some really interesting characters, and Han Tu is definitely one of those. So he's got a whole host of uh, things in his CV that I'm, I'm not sure I'm allowed to tell you, so I, I won't, but very interesting guy. So, yeah. Um,
4: I did like that story he told about the Indonesian submariners because yes. you've told that before on the podcast. Yeah, I got that it? from That's, him. Yeah. Yeah, it was very interesting though,
1: wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. So, um, so anyway, that was instructive about Indonesia and all that sort of stuff. Now: um, But I did notice that he mm-hmm. did
4: say that we were both right. He,
1: he did, yes, yes <laughs> um, So yeah. Um, it's been revealed that the Catholic Church uh, owns about at least nine billion dollars' worth of property uh, or wealth in Victoria alone and probably 30 billion in Australia. Meanwhile, they only paid out $68 in compensation to um, abuse victims. So that was very interesting to see a very uh, specific report where they've analysed the property owned by the church. No surprise to you, Scott, the amounts involved?
4: Um, I was surprised at the total amount that was involved, but I'm not surprised that they came up with... um, I'm not surprised that they came up with them being up there amongst the uh, – because I think they were the highest non-government owner of property in, in Melbourne, weren't they?
1: Um, uh, in the West, Westfield like that, Group or? was slightly more. So okay. for yeah. Australia, Westfield Group would be $34.2 billion. Yeah. Um,
4: yeah. Yeah. But West Westfield owns Garden City, Chermside, all those yeah. sorts of, you know, big shopping centres in Brisbane. Yep. And the Catholic Church owns, what, just – four billion shy of that
2: yeah hmm.
4: that is it, it's a hell of a lot of money and they don't pay rates they don't pay land tax they don't pay payroll tax they don't pay any sort of bloody tax on anything that they do well
1: they, they they do pay one form of tax scott
4: mm, which is
1: this is the 2013 Victorian Fire Services Property Levy. You weren't aware of this? No, I wasn't aware of that, no. It is a small tax imposed on all Victorian property. Um, It came about after the Black Saturday bushfires and it's imposed on all properties, including those owned by religious institutions. Which makes it unique. And there's an article here where the, where the journalists who calculated the $30 billion figure say that they were able to calculate it because of that levy. They heard about that levy being imposed... Well, they heard about it when a church complained about paying it. Ah, they did
2: complain, did they? Yes, that's right. That was my next question. Did they object?
1: So they heard about a church complaining about paying this levy and they went, aha, well, if they're paying this levy on property, then the councils must be um, assessing the values of the properties in order to impose the levy. And sure enough, the councils were. So and they how does then. Does the
2: council assess the worth of the property? They
1: send out property valuers oh, to value no. the properties. Oh. And so, using freedom of information laws, the journalists were able to get the information from the various councils, some of whom objected to providing it, and that formed the basis of their investigation. That that led them on to other things. So. So that was the key. Uh, an obscure a fire services levy that led to... um, Well, they're claiming that um, they're saying, as a result, we have what we believe is the most comprehensive media assessment of the church's wealth
2: anywhere in the world. Yeah, that's really interesting, isn't it? Yeah. And it just made me think, isn't it wonderful that we have these freedom of information laws that allow us to get access to this kind of stuff? Apparently they had to quite.
1: They had to fight quite hard with various councils, some of whom still refused, and they've had to make some assumptions along the way. Mm-hmm. But, but there you go. One little tax was enough to
2: open the door. Mm. So that was that. And have the churches come out and denied it? I mean, the Catholic uh, Church.
1: No, but here's the. Well, let's play devil's advocate. So there's an article here from Catholic News where. Uh, Sydney Archbishop Anthony Fisher says that the church is far more than its buildings. It's principally its people and their works. And he says that what the church is doing is so much charity work that they are employing so many people and they're providing so much assistance to so many people that, of course, they need assets in order to run these businesses. And when you... uh, they're saying, he says here, taken together, this makes us the nation's largest non government provider of essential services. Inevitably, that means a lot of assets. But we do all of this as a non profit organisation, so we have to work those assets hard and manage our money responsibly, etc., etc. To compare us with the likes of Westfield and West Farmers is unreal. Uh, So is valuing St Mary's Cathedral as if it were a potential site for a high-rise development. Its value is a spiritual and artistic heritage of the church, city and nation. I mean, these are valid points that they're conducting charitable businesses that need infrastructure. Yeah, sure.
2: But do they need $30 billion worth of property to do it? That's a bit questionable. Um,
4: Well, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, that they've they've amassed this amount so far because they've had tax-free status ever since the dawn of time. Mm. I think it's time that we then turn around and say, look, we're not going to go backwards. We're not going to impose taxes on you retrospectively, but prospectively, we are going to impose all these taxes on you. And I do think that uh, as part of that whole thing, I think the whole not-for-profit sector should be brought up into the tax system i really do believe that Mm.
1: so you know the counter argument to that is that actually the government pays these church groups a lot of money to provide these services so we've actually outsourced a lot of employments and services and welfare services to these church groups so if we just had our own public service doing it then we'd have them in our public service buildings and we would own it rather than the church yeah. same with the tax exactly. concessions yeah, but yeah what's, i, I
4: what's don't i don't i don't have a problem with that mm. you know I, I honestly believe that you know and if they if they are genuinely not for profit then they won't be paying any tax because they're not going to be making any money
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah,
4: but if they're correct. not genuinely, if they're not genuinely not for profit, then they will be paying tax.
2: Correct. And, There's no profit, of us, no tax. None of us have an objection to the, to, to genuine non-profit groups do to know, not well, paying tax. Well,
4: uh, well, I
2: I have a do. problem with a lot of them. <laughs> you
4: know, yeah, but I but have if a problem with genuinely
2: a lot of them, charitable groups, and they're not make they're not working to make a profit. Well, well a lot of these
1: non-profits. Like um, Penrith Leagues Club, for example, you know, they're massive businesses. You just but, don't like Westies, but, do you? But, but, like, well... <laughs> <laughs> I, actually, I don't like poker machines is what I don't oh, like. Okay. So, you know, that's exactly right. You yeah. know, I have a real yeah. objection to, okay. to that. So, um, so, you know, that's a topic for another day, perhaps. But there are a lot of... Uh, those sorts of businesses that are quite massive and substantial who should be just treated like a normal business mm. rather
2: than oh, as something sanitarium special. Sanitarium is the obvious mm. example, isn't it? Sanitarium Health Food Company. Yeah. Well, they don't
1: even pretend to be charitable in that sense. It's just owned by the Seventh-day Adventists. Mm. Yeah. So,
2: anyway. And I wouldn't tear down their churches and build high-rise buildings on them i would turn them into museums some of them are wonderful buildings yeah. and they have wonderful um audio characteristics there'd be terrific do, concert venues do the seventh day adventists have good buildings no not them they right. have very dour right. dour right how do you pronounce it very dour, dour. looking yeah, yeah sort the of place dour you'd dour find people. richard dawkins hanging out no no right. i don't think so um but some of the Catholic and um, you know some of the Catholic m- m- cathedrals and churches would make very fine concert venues.
1: Yeah, art galleries. Whatever. Yep. Yeah. yeah,
2: cafes. Cafes, mm. indeed. Mm. Even homes. Mm. I've seen churches converted into very decent homes. Mm. It's been a while. We
1: haven't had Hugh Harris on the program for a while. Um, Hugh's been busy with a few different things, um, but he will be back at some stage. In the next little while, dear listener. But I follow his Facebook page, and he had a a link to an article about a woman in a Victorian court who was just uh, not being not a witness and not a participant as such, but who was in the gallery who wanted to wear the niqab, and the judge said that if she wanted to be in the um, public gallery, then she had to show her face and couldn't wear the niqab. So it was either remove the niqab or go outside. And, uh, let's see, the Islamic Council of Victoria said that's a terrible invasion of her privacy and it's against her religious freedom. Uh, I, You know, I assume we're all in agreement that the judge was within his rights to do that scott you?
4: absolutely yeah. yeah i have absolutely no complaint whatsoever with the judge yep. he did the right thing you know in a court you've got to be able to see people's faces so if she had a problem with it she should have been wearing the hijab and that would have been it you know yeah so think. um so or she I- could have taken the face veil off and just gone in with the whole thing you know with the Because the niqab niqab is just basically the hijab with something across the face that only leaves the eyes showing. So if she'd taken that off, that would have been fine. Yeah. But, no, clearly she was just – she was a husband. Her husband's on a terrorism charge, isn't he?
1: Oh, I I didn't get to that detail. Yeah, but,
4: But, you know, she was just there to make trouble, that's all.
1: Yeah. The thing that interests me is just looking at Hugh's Facebook page, he posts a lot of stuff about all sorts of things, a huge range of topics, and some of them quite critical of different people here and there. And he had that Such article...
2: a joyless person, isn't he? Oh, I no, no,
1: he's... A, yeah. <laughs> some would accuse him of that, yes. Uh, Jensen or whatever his name would accuse him of being joyless, but no, he's a good guy. <laughs> but on, so I on his it. Facebook page... I don't page,
2: really think so, you know that. Dozens of articles that might have
1: two or three shares or comments, half a dozen likes, minimal interest. This particular one just went off with people commenting on it. Uh, you know, the thread just went on and on. Like, I think there might have been sort of at least 100 sort of comments on there uh, to do with this hijab, uh, with this uh, niqab. And the other one on his Facebook page was an article about um, Barnaby Joyce. And once again, a flood of comments and interactions on, on that. And Hugh, your Facebook page had lots of really interesting stuff on there that by comparison was totally ignored. But people were in a frenzy um, commenting and giving their two cents worth on the NACAB issue and the Barnaby Joyce issue, and I just think that's a really interesting observation. And I think it is an example. Do you remember us talking about bike shedding?
2: Bike yep. shedding, yes. Bike shedding, and what yeah. you do behind the bike shed? You,
1: you haven't, you haven't heard the bike shedding story at all. You haven't heard the the the. Uh, I think or, I have, but I don't recall it. I'm sorry. Right. So. Um, dear listener, long-time listeners will be aware of this one, this, um, uh, this accusation of, of bike-shedding. But um, uh, it, it came from um, oh, it came from a book, I think. Uh, it's the third chapter of a book, High Finance or the Point of Vanishing Interest. And this author, Parkinson, writes about a fictional finance committee meeting with a three-item agenda. The first is the signing of a $10 million um, uh, dollar contract to build a reactor. The second item on the agenda is a proposal to build a 350-pound bicycle shed for the clerical staff and the third proposes a 21-pound a year to supply refreshments for the Joint Welfare Committee. And what he says is that the $10 million number is too big and too technical and it passes in two and a half minutes. One committee member proposes a completely different plan which nobody is willing to accept as the planning is advanced and another who understands the topic has concerns but does not feel he can explain his concerns to the others on the committee. But So, yeah, So the bigger ticket item passes in two and a half minutes. The bicycle shed is a subject understood by the board and the amount is within their life experience... And he goes on to describe how all the committee members then chip in with their two cents worth about the structure of the bike shed and what sort of roof it should have and the size of it and all the rest of it. Because people feel they can make a a comment that at least makes sense or isn't going to feel, be stupid. And the same goes with the coffee machine as to what coffee people should have. And Hugh, correct me if I'm wrong, but do you reckon there was a bit of bike shedding going on on your Facebook page where people could wax lyrical about a niqab in a courtroom or Barnaby Joyce and his indiscretions and give an opinion, whereas the more important subjects we just glossed over because nobody could really understand them, perhaps, or we'll take the time to. There I, you go.
2: I've seen exactly the same thing happen on the Secular Party Facebook page, ah, and yes. maybe you've noticed as well. Yes. Um, every time they post... Some sort of sensational article, such as the ones you mentioned, yeah they're just about everybody's willing to put in their two cents worth but if you whenever they post an article that is somewhat longer, requires quite a bit more investment of time and thought and an- analytical thinking to draw out what it 's really about it's roundly ignored, usually yes. yep. Just ignored. Yep, it is. <laughs> and there's not much we can do about it, but it's just... Uh... Uh, prob- it's probably, to some degree, just human nature. And I I don't know, maybe if we were still hunter-gatherers sitting around the campfire, you know, chewing the fat ab- about the day's advent, uh, what would we be talking about? The elk that got away mm-hmm. rather than... You see that big light in the sky i wonder yeah, where that I comes mean, from yeah what it really <laughs> i wonder is. how far away it is <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
1: if we can measure the shadows maybe we can work out the distance yeah yeah, yeah. so it's probably part of our nature I yeah guess. It, it is but it's just um <laughs> um uh, it's enough to turn you off facebook if you haven't been turned off already yeah.
2: <laughs> um, i quite like facebook yeah
1: uh, thanks to our patrons, Sean, Alex, Janelle, Craig, John, Jason, Grant, Waino, Ayami, Brett, Alison, Steve, Tony, Caitlin, James, Craig, Jimmy. Thank you very much for your support. It is much appreciated. We'd have a good run of late with pa- new patrons coming on. Three we in have. February. We very much. Yeah. And three in we January. So, um, so thank you guys for that. Um, for those of you who are out there and have not decided to help us out. Um, well, here's your message to our patrons.
2: Did I ever tell you you're my hero? You're
1: everything, everything I wish I could be. Hmm. Uh, gentlemen, we're nearing the end Uh Queensland Parents for Secular State Schools point out that if your child is getting religious instruction and they're in upper primary, they'd be getting close to lesson four. Um, And in one of the booklets, the instructor will be telling the children, um, I can't put my dirty towel in the cupboard until it has been cleaned. Just like that, sinners, and the instructor points to the grey towel, can't be in the presence of a perfect God, points to the white towel, unless they've been cleaned. There you go, dear listener. That's the sort of stuff going on in religious instruction lessons in Lesson 4 for upper primary students.
2: Sometime around about now. It's frightening, isn't it? It's twisted thinking, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. I mean, to to try and put that on children, you know, to have them describe themselves as, or or, or to describe them as dirty towels that need to be cleaned. Yeah. It's just, it's outrageous. It really is, isn't mm, it? If I was to
1: join a satanic organisation, number one thing on my priority list, first piece of activism would be to get registered as an RI supplier in Queensland, just to see what reaction I would get. Yeah. So, good luck with that. Right, well, how could they say no? <laughs> they very well could. I imagine. N- no, this is the point. They, they could not It's open to a religion to register as an, ins- you know, you've you've got different administrative hoops to jump through in terms of having a little mini curriculum, mm. and your own accreditation of volunteers who understand the uh, the laws that they're subject to, but otherwise you're just teaching your doctrine. And it's open to religious groups, so...
2: And you don't think they'll throw all kinds of obstacles in your way?
1: Wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't that then demonstrate, well, this isn't really about religious uh, freedom or instruction, it's about Christian instruction Mm. and freedom. So I think it's a great sort of area for potential Satanist groups to get involved
2: with. So you signing up to this satanic cult to Mm -hmm. Scotland?
4: I haven't
1: decided
2: yet. So. Right. <laughs> Thinking about it, yeah.
1: So, okay. if you like the idea of that, dear listener, just keep it in mind. Okay, that's religious instruction. Um, uh, any of you guys familiar with Peter Rabbit?
2: Not really. Are you no, familiar with Peter Rabbit maybe. at all?
1: Um, no, I couldn't tell you. Okay, no. there's a new Peter Rabbit film out. The makers of the new film, Peter Rabbit, have apologised after facing a backlash over their depiction of a character's allergy. A scene in the film shows a character who suffers a blackberry allergy being pelted with blackberries by a gang of bunnies. So the human character, Tom McGregor, who has an allergy to the berries, is attacked by Peter and his friends who shower him with the fruit even shooting one into his mouth until he is forced to use an epi
2: to treat his reaction. What do you reckon of that? It's kind of contemporary, isn't it? Um.
4: Well, I, you know, I, I don't have a problem with it because it's just a, it's a fictional film and that sort of stuff that is depicting something that, uh, you know, I, I can't understand why they would want to apologise for it.
2: They're apologising because that's what everybody does these days.
4: Well, yeah, I mean, that's that's ridiculous. You'd think that they'd have some sort of... They'd stand up for themselves a little bit. But,
1: but, but hang on, that's it's incredibly dangerous. No, I mean, in all seriousness, I'll tell you a story. There was a boy at uh, the Gap High who had a peanut allergy. Everybody knew he had a peanut allergy. It was a severe peanut allergy. Kids in his class were asked not to have peanut paste sandwiches.
0: In the and, same room with him. Yeah.
1: And at one stage, some kid got uh, shits with him and threw a peanut paste sandwich at him, which hit him on the arm. He immediately pulled his EpiPen out, injected himself, walked slowly to the office, or well, not slowly, but immediately to the office and took two more injections before the ambulance arrived, took him to hospital, and he just survived. So it is a deadly serious thing, um, these allergies, and uh, the medical staff there were furious that some kid had thrown a peanut sandwich, a peanut paste sandwich at this kid when everybody knew. But kids are kids. Kids are kids. but, But,
2: you know... And people, that's a kid's film, and that's why people are so upset. Exactly. It's so, because kids will copy what they see. Exactly. It was an incredibly dangerous scene to put in
1: a Peter Rabbit movie. In the zone. So um, I can't believe they actually did so it. So it's
2: not really a case of political correctness, it's no. a case of um, common sense, really, isn't it?
1: It is. There you go, dear listener. Well, it's my opinion anyway. So um,
4: I must be a little bit soft on him. I, I didn't think it was that bad anyway. No, so. <laughs>
1: I mean, this is the problem. Sometimes people can, you know, um, exaggerate their, their issues, but there are people who have very, very severe allergies. Um, I mean, there are people, you know, couples, where they've killed their partner by kissing them after having had a peanut paste sandwich early yes. in the day. Like, yeah, it's, yeah, peanut, it's unbelievable how dangerous mm. um, the reactions can be from peanuts. So, so yeah, anyway, that was interesting about Peter Rabbit. And um, we haven't mentioned Donald Trump of late. Um, Do we have to? Oh, look, I just, I love Jonathan Pye, um, the comedian in England. He came out. It's been a while now, but I wanted to get these out while I've got the chance, and before they get too stale. So here's what um, Jonathan Pye had to say about Trump.
5: My four-year-old son has more diplomatic acumen than Trump, and he still wets the bed. At least he's not paying (laughs) Russian hookers to do it for him, I suppose.
1: (laughs) And the other one was.
5: I guess Trump's main achievement is that he's made it acceptable to use the word shithole on the six o'clock news. I I mean, that is progress, isn't it?
1: If you're not following Jonathan Pye, um, do that. He is He's good. Hi, yeah. oh, gentlemen. There's a couple of other things, but this has been a super long episode. I think we should probably call it a day. Um, dear listener, thanks, Greg, for your contribution with the little thought experiment with the um, seatbelts and whatnot. And, um, yeah, any listeners out there who want to propose any... Um, sort of ethical issues like that to us, please do. And we look forward to them. So, uh, gentlemen, we'll meet again next week, I think. Until then,
4: uh, goodbye, everyone. Talk to you then. Thank you very much. Cheers. Bye now. Bye, everyone.
1: Well, dear listener, did you enjoy that episode of the podcast? If you did, I've got a favour to ask. Uh, First up, tell some friends